So good afternoon, everyone. Delighted to have you here. Welcome to this panel. The first of what we anticipate will be a series of policy papers that seek to reassess the U.S.'s approaches to human rights in key countries around the world. I'm Bill Schulz, Senior Fellow for Human Rights Policy here at CAP, and I want especially to thank two of our staff, Sarah Dreyer and Winnie Chen, who played major roles in the preparation of this report. I'm going to give you an outline of the report, and then I'm honored to be joined on the panel today by Professor Harry Harding, university professor at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University and a recognized expert on Chinese domestic politics and foreign policy, as well as U.S.-China relations, and by Louisa Grieve, program director for East Asia at the National Endowment for Democracy, who specializes in human rights in China and has studied, worked, and traveled frequently in China since 1980. Virtually no one believed that China would ever abolish the Shorong detention system, and certainly not over the death of one more unknown victim. The Shorong system was a shadowy network of some 700 detention centers which China used to enforce its internal migration policies, especially from the countryside into the cities, and into which anyone deemed undesirable by the police could be thrown on almost any pretext. Thousands of people had been beaten, tortured, even killed inside these centers, and usually the only way out was to pay an exorbitant bribe. The death of Sun Jigang in 2003 appeared destined to be forgotten just as all the other Shorung abuses had been ignored or forgotten. But that was before the Southern Metropolis Daily, one of the most outspoken newspapers in the country, learned of the case and decided to make Sun's death national news. Sun Jigang, it turned out, was not a typical victim of Shorung. He was not a vagrant, not homeless, not unemployed. A graduate student working as a graphic designer, his papers and identification were all in order, and his boss had vouched for him to the police, but for some reason they would not let him go. And after four days in detention, this healthy 27-year-old had allegedly died of heart trouble. After a thorough investigation, the Southern Metropolis Daily, which had played a major role in exposing the SARS cover-up, had plastered Sun's story over its front page and through the country's two largest websites. Within hours, it had become the biggest story in China, and the editors, despite their bravado, were nervous. Surely, the government would not stand for such, such insubordination. But as the weeks passed and nothing happened, they grew bolder. And then, less than two months after the story broke, the then-new premier, Wan Jiaobao, announced that the Shorung system would be dismantled. It was a remarkable victory, but it came at a price, for even though the national government had acquiesced, had in effect acknowledged the inefficacy, if not inequity, of the Shorung system, the paper had made some powerful local enemies. Within days, the publisher was in custody, where he stayed for four years, and shortly thereafter, the editor was arrested on trumped-up charges of financial mismanagement, though he fortunately was released in five months. The relationship between the United States and China is the most important bilateral relationship in the world because of China's economic might 
its growing military power, and the enormous reach of its influence not just throughout Asia but increasingly throughout the developing world. Its impact on the state of human rights is similarly profound. There are as many as half a million people condemned without trial to so-called re-education through labor camps. Thousands of members of unregistered religious groups, lawyers who try to bring legal action against the government, and citizens who try to protest corruption are often harassed, imprisoned, or worse. Forced abortion continues to plague Chinese women. China's treatment of Tibetans and Uyghur Muslims is particularly harsh, and the death penalty is imposed persistently, often for nonviolent crimes. Uh, China's impact on human rights outside its borders is similarly problematic. It is, for example, a major defender of and investor in repressive regimes like Sudan's and Myanmar's. But at the same time, China's remarkable economic growth has improved social and economic rights for millions of Chinese, and we should remind ourselves that social and economic rights are just as important as civil and political. Moreover, the government has taken important steps toward recognizing the right to private property and, at the local level, introduced some competitive elections. It is also true that, in many ways, Chinese citizens exercise increasing individual freedoms. There are as many as two million non-governmental organizations in China and widespread access to the Internet. And though both NGOs and Internet access are, of course, considerably constrained, they reflect as one activist put it, the fact that, quote, people have much more information now and they're much more willing to defend their rights. And I think we have seen that most recently in the response to the Charter 08 letter and principles. Uh, China has ratified more human rights treaties than the United States, and its constitution even contains the phrase, the state respects and protects human rights. As the story of uh, Sun Jigang and the uh, Southern Metropolis Daily illustrates, however, criticism aimed at local officials can sometimes have far-reaching impact, but there are still very real dangers to bucking the status quo. The United States has long been seen as championing human rights in China, reporting regularly on abuses in the State Department's annual human rights reports and raising concerns about individual prisoners that have sometimes resulted in their release. But U.S. policy toward human rights in China has often vacillated between harsh condemnations, as reflected in many of the congressional resolutions introduced and sometimes adopted on the subject, and on the other hand, flimsy acquiescence prompted by the faith that economic growth alone can be counted upon to affect improvements eventually. The delinking of trade and human rights early in the Clinton administration may have been absolutely the right decision, but since then, human rights policy toward China seems to have lost its moorings. And what is certainly true is that the U.S. has rarely spoken with one coherent voice about the matter. Indeed, as Secretary Clinton herself noted just the other day, the Bush administration emphasized almost exclusively the economic relationship between the U.S. and China to the exclusion of other critical issues. Moreover, the U.S.'s clumsiness on human rights policy towards China has been exacerbated by the decline in the U.S.'s own credibility on human rights thanks to our own myriad violations committed in the name of the war on terror 
and exacerbated most recently due to the economic crisis, which has diminished the reputation of the world's leading proponent of free market-led democratic reforms. And why is the improvement of human rights in China important to the United States? Not just, I want to emphasize, for feel-good reasons, but because states that allow themselves to be held to account by their own citizens and respect the rule of law tend to be more reliable partners in their relations with other states. Any authoritarian country is inherently brittle, caught up in needless preoccupation with controlling its own <clears throat> population, and warding off dissent, and that makes for suspicion and resentment of outsiders. The absence of a viable opposition or a fully independent press makes a ruling party less wary of abrogating international agreements or alienating other nations for no good reason. And a fickle approach to the rule of law jeopardizes everything from business contracts for American corporations to enforcement of trade and environmental agreements. Cheap Chinese labor undercuts American jobs, uh, just as the higher the labor standards in a country, the slower the U.S. trade deficit grows. And if we accept the commonly agreed proposition that democracies rarely, if ever, launch wars against other democracies, then a more democratic China is likely, at least theoretically, to be a less belligerent China. So what should the United States do to encourage greater respect for human rights in China? The key is to take a coherent, non-ideological approach that resists reveling in easy rhetorical attacks, but opts instead for keen attention to strategic opportunities. Our report lays out eight principles that should inform U.S. policy and several dozen concrete recommendations. I'm going to touch on just four of those principles and mention a handful of the recommendations before turning the microphones over to Harry and Louisa. The United States would be traducing its own values, of course, if it failed to call China to account for its human rights violations. But the truth is that there are very few practical ways that the U.S. can punish China, quote unquote, punish China, that do not damage our own interests at the same time. And with a country as sensitive and prone to bursts of anti-Western nationalism as China, punishment usually backfires. So the U.S. should adopt a preferential option for carrots over sticks, finding ways to reinforce what China does right, even when the changes are incremental. One of the most effective ways to do that is to appeal to China's self-interest and connect the dots between appearance and reality. Every year, for example, thousands of riots take place in China over issues like corruption, land use, environmental concerns, or police misconduct. Criticism may appear to be destabilizing, but providing vehicles for critical expression actually can have the very opposite effect. The SARS and tainted milk scandals, for example, point up the real advantages of having free media acting as watchdogs on corruption. China's environmental defenders, far from being adversaries of the state, should be understood to be allies in the struggle against energy scarcity. China often fails to perceive accurately how it is viewed around the world, how its support for repressive regimes, for example, damages its reputation with established and emerging democracies. Having experienced more than our own fair share of bad press over the past eight years, the United States is now in a far stronger position to impress upon China the importance of playing by the international rules. But 
The U.S. cannot do that by itself. So another principle to follow is to globalize the pressure on China. The decision by the African dock workers to block arms shipments to Zimbabwe was invaluable, not only substantively, but because it sent the message that it was not just the usual suspects who were purveying concern. The UN Committee Against Torture's recent critical report on abuses in the Chinese legal system coming as it did from a respected international body made it impossible for China to deny the global nature of human rights criticism. As hearings just the other day held by the House of Representatives Tom Lantos Commission on Human Rights emphasized, the UN Human Rights Council's universal periodic review process during which the human rights records of all member states will be reviewed provides a perfect opportunity for the world community to hold China to account for its abuses. China cares deeply what the world community thinks of it and expends significant energy and resources to avoid loss of faith. The United States should take advantage of that by encouraging others to take the lead in engaging with China on these issues. And whether it be the U.S. or its human rights allies, a fourth principle should be to seek common ground on such mutually agreeable goals as the elimination of sex trafficking and to take advantage of internal divisions within the Chinese leadership itself. After all, the reason that the Shorong detention system was abolished was not just because of a courageous newspaper and bad publicity, it was because many government officials themselves had long believed that Shorong did more harm than good, and the Sun Jurgang incident provided a perfect opening. So what specifically should the U.S. do? In order to speak with a more coherent voice, the new administration should create an interagency working group on human rights in China to coordinate and prioritize policies. It should continue the U.S.-China dialogue on human rights, which was long suspended by the Bush administration, but it should establish benchmarks for success and coordinate that conversation with its European allies. The U.S. should stand for election to the U.N. Human Rights Council, not least in order to help obviate China's regressive approach to human rights there and to utilize U.N. mechanisms to globalize pressure on China. The U.S. should reverse the decline in government funding for human rights and democracy programs in China and encourage non-governmental funders of such programs to meet and develop a coordinated funding strategy. It should review and update its export control list to ensure the U.S. is not supplying law enforcement with equipment designed to abuse people's rights. In two years, the Congress should review the Information and Communication Technology Company's Voluntary Global Network Initiative designed to ensure that such companies are not collaborating with the Chinese government to violate people's rights, and if the initiative has proven ineffective, Congress should take remedial action. The U.S. should either strengthen enforcement of the 1992 Memorandum of Understanding prohibiting trade in labor products made in Chinese prisons, a memorandum that has been honored far more in the breach than in practice, or should consider scrapping it. The U.S. should keep on the table the proposals to open a diplomatic office in Tibet and a special envoy for Uyghur affairs, and the U.S. should stress to the Chinese at the highest level that they must cooperate in ending the crimes against humanity in Darfur. These are but a few of the reports 
27 recommendations. But just as important as any of these is a commitment to stay the course, to recognize both the limits of power, but the obligation to wield what power we have. Changing China's attitude towards civil and political rights will not come quickly. Indeed, the current economic crisis, which is affecting China just as it is the rest of the world, may slow progress even further. But China really is, as President Obama put it in his inaugural address, on the wrong side of history. And our obligation is to be stubborn but pragmatic, flexible but persistent, and to remember that what Martin Luther King Jr. said was absolutely correct. The arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. It does bend toward justice. Let me now ask Harry Harding to make a first set of remarks, and Louisa will follow. Thank you very much, Bill. It's always a pleasure to be here at the Center for American Progress, and a particular pleasure today to comment on uh, Bill Schultz's uh, report, Strategic Persistence. I particularly admire and appreciate Bill's attempt to define a grand strategy for promoting human rights and democracy in China, what he calls general principles that he says should underlie American policy on this important subject. So let me underscore, perhaps in slightly different language than Bill has used, what I think are the most important of these general principles and then go on to add a few others to the list. He may or may not agree with my amendments. Having done that, I'm then going to make the case that some parts of his analysis of the present situation in China may depart somewhat from those general principles, as may a very small number of his specific policy recommendations, which he has just outlined uh, for you. If I were to summarize my understanding of the general strategic principles that uh, Bill has laid out in his report, it would be the following. First of all, our ability to force China against the will of its leaders to advance human rights and promote democracy is limited. Our sticks were relatively weak and arguably even counterproductive after June 4th. And they probably, given the rise in Chinese power, the change in the relative balance between China and the United States, no stronger or no more effective today than they were then. Second, at the same time, China's rise as a major player in international affairs and simultaneously the growth of an ever-expanding number of transnational issues as a result of the worldwide process of globalization means that the U.S.-China agenda is expanding far beyond what it was in the 1980s and even the early 1990s, far beyond the traditional trinity of trade, Taiwan, and human rights. We therefore need China's cooperation on a far greater range of bilateral, regional, and international issues now than we did 20 years ago. And if we cannot get that cooperation, both our countries will suffer. Therefore, human rights, as Bill has said, can be only one, although an important one, issue in that broader agenda of the U.S.-China relationship. Given this, our emphasis should be on supporting positive developments, working with both Chinese government agencies and with Chinese civil society, wherever it is possible to move the situation forward. I would differ with Bill in one aspect of his terminology here. I don't see this as a matter of offering carrots 
because that might imply paying the Chinese to do something that they would not otherwise do, bribing them in effect as opposed to coercing them. Rather, I see this as providing support to positive developments with either funds or, even more importantly, with various kinds of technical assistance to both civil society and to appropriate parts of the Chinese government. Next, where we need to make assessments of China's human rights situation, we need a broad definition of that subject. Human rights, as Bill points out, is not coterminous with democracy. And in fact, the attainment of these two objectives will almost certainly occur on quite different timescales, uh, with the first, that is, the promotion of human rights more broadly, sooner than the second, the promotion of democracy. And as Bill has also acknowledged, human rights is not just civil and political rights, but includes economic and social rights as well. Poverty alleviation is as worthy an objective from a human rights point of view as is democracy promotion. Where we are critical of China, as we obviously will have to be, our approach should be as multilateral as possible, so that it is clear that what we say about the situation reflects not just American peculiarities or preferences, but universal norms and a global consensus on human rights and on the situation in China. Now, to these statements of general principle, I would add a few others. First of all, my experience in dealing with Chinese over the years is that our assessments of China need to be well-informed, well-balanced, and well-intentioned. Chinese, and here I'm speaking not just of government officials, but ordinary Chinese as well, will be sensitive to any signs that American critics are making a one-sided case or that Americans' human rights policy is intended primarily to keep China down, to make it weak, to destabilize it, to divide it, rather than to advance more positive objectives that they would share. Second, in thinking about strategy, we might apply the Chinese version of the golden rule. Do not do unto others what you would not want them to do unto you. So we might think that where there are significant human rights abuses in the United States, and there are some, what Chinese, or for that matter more broadly, what foreign policies would Americans welcome as a way of promoting better adherence to human rights in the United States? Third, as the emphasis shifts from sticks to carrots, or what I would call from criticism and sanction to support and assistance, I think the emphasis will also shift somewhat from the role of government to the role of NGOs perhaps working, of course, with government financial support. If, as Bill says, our objective can best be described as, and I quote him, persuading China that human rights and democracy is in its own interest, close quote, then that message can best be conveyed to the Chinese by NGOs working in that country, perhaps by individual leaders that their Chinese counterparts have come to trust and respect, more so than the US government as a bureaucratic organization which will probably be assumed in many cases to be reflecting American interests far more than Chinese interests. And fi finally, the United States needs to improve its own human rights record, needs to improve the operation of our own democratic system if its criticisms of others are to have the maximum credibility and legitimacy. Now, with these general principles in mind, what is it about the analysis of the situation in China that I question? As usual, it's not the specific facts or trends that are cited. 
It's where the relative emphasis is placed and where the bottom line is drawn. Let me cite a couple of examples of this. First is the idea that appears on one page of the report that China's human rights violations should be judged by the sheer numbers of people involved rather than by the severity of the violations. If that's true, it means, uh, does it mean, almost by definition, that North Korea will always have a better human rights record than China, simply because it has a population of 20 million people and China has a population of 1.3 billion people. I think most of us would find that comparison uh, to be, uh, if it comes out in uh, North Korea's favor, to be a bit questionable. And I think also I don't, that I don't really see the need to come to that kind of bottom line judgment as to which country in the world violates human rights more. The question is, in any given situation, what is the human rights situation? Uh, where is it improving? Where is it deteriorating? Rather than trying to come up with summary judgments, which are almost impossible uh, to draw. Uh, I'd also add that if the situation is as bad as Bill says, that China is the worst violator of human, or maybe the most, the premier, I want to quote him correctly, the premier violator of human rights in the world, why is it, by his own account, that so many Chinese, according to public opinion polls, are satisfied with the situation in their own country? Second, despite some acknowledgment, especially in his oral remarks just now, of the relevance of social and economic rights, the paper itself focuses in its description of the situation in China almost exclusively on political and civil rights. Third, despite some acknowledgment of positive developments, in general, the balance is always weighted towards the negative. Uh, as we know rhetorically, as we know the situation empirically in China is complex. There is no meaningful sentence about China that doesn't probably have a but in it somewhere. But we also know that rhetorically what matters is the phrase that follows the but rather than precedes it. And if you go through the paper, you will tend to find that what follows the but is the negative part rather than the positive part. So for example, there is a paragraph on one of the most interesting political reforms in China, the experiments with what might be called deliberative democracy a form of democratic procedure that has much, many more adherents in Canada and Australia elsewhere than, the, in the United, than in the United States, for example. And yet the bottom line that follows the but uh, is that um, this um, does not uh, involve competitive elections at the national level. What if we simply took those two facts and turned them around so that the sentence or the passage might, lead, might read as follows? Although there are no competitive elections at the national level, Democratic deliberation seems to have increased significantly at local levels and in national associations. Same facts, but simply put in a way that comes out with a very different implication as to the uh, significance. Or perhaps most obviously on page 7, there is a full page table of human rights abuses in China. In fact, it was one of Bill's slides. There is no comparable table, full page, half page, two line of any length, uh, where uh, that indicates the areas in which human rights in China have, have improved over the last 30 years. So in other words, I think that while we would all agree that we need a well-balanced assessment if we are to be credible, and while in many ways Bill has tried to provide it, I think on balance this is not as well-balanced a document as I would like to see. Finally, I agree with many of the, in fact most, of the specific uh, recommendations. And for the sake of time, I won't rehearse them here, although I do have uh, a list. Recommendations for the U.S. government, for the international community, 
for state and local governments in the U.S., for NGOs, and for American business. But I do continue to have a question as to why in the recommendations some human rights are implicitly valued more than others and get special attention. Why are rights of Tibetans and Uyghurs emphasized for special attention as opposed to other ethnic minorities in China or for that matter uh, for uh, Han Chinese? There are lots of abuses and yet we have a tendency to be concerned even organizationally with some more than others. In the same way, why are we focused so much on the restriction of freedom of religious practice as opposed to all the other freedoms of practice and expression uh, that are equally important from a human rights point of view? Again, organizationally, we create specific roles, organizations in the U.S. government to promote some human rights as opposed to others. And I've never understood uh, from a uh, broader perspective as to why we do this. Or to give another example, uh, Bill says that a foreign service officer in each American embassy in Africa should be given the specific task of monitoring Chinese policy towards the human rights abuses of the local government. Well, that's fine, but shouldn't that person also be charged with monitoring all aspects of Chinese policy towards that government in question? Its military relationship, its economic relationship, its political relationship, why single out human rights in, uh, in particular? So I think that my main concern is that while Bill calls for balance and he calls for patience, I think in some particular areas there is um, a one-sided assessment of China uh, and very selective attention to some human rights abuses as compared uh, to others. But I want to conclude by emphasizing how much I respect and agree with the strategic principles on, in Bill's report uh, which uh, call for both an acknowledgment of the limitations on American power, the opportunities provided by the chance to work with forces in China that are trying to move the situation forward, uh, and the realization that progress, while slow, uh, may also be uh, steady. Thanks very much. Great. Thank you very much, Harry. Lisa? Thank you. Uh, I'd also like to pick up on one uh, principle in particular, one that Harry mentioned that Bill presents in this uh, very well-written paper. Uh, this is the one uh, emphasizing that there's a difference in strategies in, for promoting democracy and for promoting human rights. And that is worth underlining. <coughs> uh, for one thing, uh, it does map the situation on the ground. The Chinese government uh, uses both terms in its own rhetoric about uh, the leadership uses that both terms in its rhetoric about goals for China, how it's developing its institutions. Uh, but its interpretation of one is much more, is much closer to the real thing than the other. Uh, when the Chinese government talks about democracy and you listen for what that really means, uh, it's quite different from what uh, most people around the world understand it to mean. And yet when it uses the word human rights, in particular this phrase Wei Chuan, rights defense, uh, very often there is a close tracking of the kinds of rights that Chinese citizens are endeavoring to claim and which uh, all of us who understand universal principles of human rights, uh, what we understand those to be. Uh, and so I want to say that that's a, a very good distinction to make. However, at the same time, uh, I would, would emphasize that in the long run, what will bring both kinds of regimes into existence, uh, there's something that they both have in common, and that is changes in institutional practice and in uh, broadly shared values, the political culture in both cases, uh, both are needed to bring both democracy and human rights. So the first thing I do want to emphasize, uh, therefore, is 
the long-term nature of the vision that, that Bill is pushing here. This challenge is a long-term one, and that has to be at the core of our analysis and our actions. And indeed, the report does a very good job, I think, of guiding us to thinking about how to support change as a long-term process, not looking for short-term fixes. A second sobering aspect of the problem is the immense dimension of, uh, <coughs> of what needs to be done. The bad news is there is a lot to be done. Uh, but there is a silver lining there. The good news is that uh, there are, therefore, many different ways to support and assist the people in China who are trying to make progress uh, on human rights. And again, the report, I think, outlines a lot of uh, interesting uh, ideas, how to best ways to do that, and in fact, would be quite a challenge to implement them all. And a third point uh, is that it, it really cannot be overemphasized that the struggle to establish respect for human rights and their realization in reality is really an internal one. So outsiders want to help, but they have to understand that it's an internal struggle. Uh, and Bill has explained why it's in the interests of the U.S. as an outsider to, provi <clears throat> to provide that support. So what, what kind of support and help should we be uh, offering? The first kind goes back to the old-fashioned kind of criticism that we've just been talking about. That kind of public vocal support for democratic goals, for respect for human rights, judiciously applied, does strengthen Democrats and defenders of human rights. Good old-fashioned pressure on the government can still help in individual cases. This is a strategy of defending the defenders, creating political space for change agents, opinion leaders, people who are ahead of the curve. Uh, and preserving that, that space for constructive debate about China's future. And outside help very often can protect those people who are willing to stand up for unpopular views or, let's say, views that are unpopular with the government. Uh, and to create a pluralistic debate within China about where to go, particularly for minority voices, uh, including the ethnic minorities, the Tibetans, the Uyghurs, the Mongols, and others. Uh, and there's another dimension, however, for public vocal expressions of concern on the part of the U.S. about human rights in China, and that is going around the government or over the heads of the government to express solidarity with the desires of people in China to claim their rights, to have a say in their policy, to have uh, accountable public policy making. Beyond public rhetorical support for human rights goals. Of course, uh, one of the things that's in the report that I think is uh, really, really important, hasn't been discussed as much so far, is the role of particular strategies in government-to-government, -government, bilateral, institutional contact. These are some of the most uh, interesting recommendations, and I, I recommend uh, that people look at them closely. Uh, the way that people uh, involved in uh, official working groups and also in day-to-day -day contact with their counterparts within some of the functional ministries, specialized agencies within the Chinese government. If, if U.S. government voices are uh, organized perhaps through uh, strategies laid out in interagency government working groups, uh, the way, the stance that they take, the kinds of suggestions they make, the kinds of conditions that they want to put forward really can strengthen the work of their counterparts who are looking to improve the institutional functioning on the Chinese side in a way that will protect human rights. The examples people know uh, well are how uh, legal system reforms were strengthened by the process of negotiating the World Trade Organization, environment, environmental protection is another. And as Harry mentioned, private cooperation on the U.S. side with change agents in China is also very, very important. 
it's lower visibility. And so it doesn't necessarily always bring in uh, a kind of sensitive reaction that we've identified as such a problem with public criticism. It does assist local efforts. And there it's again deferring to local agents who, people who understand the situation, who have designed a strategy with their own situation, their own society in mind, Bill's first principle, that who knows best what might work in China. Chinese people working in a low-key, private-level cooperation with people in China who have a vision of, of how to make change happen uh, ought to be a very, very prominent way for Americans to try to leverage their attention in a way that's most likely to bring results. And finally, this kind of approach can, it's not only uh, a way of working with NGOs or at the grassroots. There are also people in official and semi-official institutions inside China who would very much benefit from low-key, uh, unpublicized cooperation with private, act private uh, actors from the outside in areas, and all the areas that are so eloquently described in the report, legal rights, transparency of government action, uh, women's rights, labor rights, public health, issue, uh, public health issues, and so on. Uh, all these areas of public policy and all kinds of actors each have their own role to play. And so that's my, my uh, fourth and larger point uh, about how to approach this work. A lot of different things have to come together for human rights to really uh, be realized, for there to be noticeable progress. And Bill mentioned it perfectly in his anecdote, anecdote about the Shurong Jincha uh, system, uh, Sun Gong's case and the abolition of that uh, uh, detention system. Uh, many different kinds of actors, proposals, and uh, incidents needed to come together to have change occur. Uh, so I believe that all, everyone wishing to improve human rights in China needs to take an agnostic approach. You don't know in advance which of those factors will be the most decisive, and you don't know uh, whether one, one force alone could make the difference. And so don't put your eggs in one basket. Be agnostic and uh, acknowledge there are many different actors, each with their own role to play. And I believe they all deserve our, our support because we are, we are, when we're committed to uh, making this happen. We want to give every opportunity for all those factors, the confluence, to come together in a way that will be successful. And so that, that differs a little bit, I think, Bill, from your emphasis on a coherent voice within the U.S. government. There's certainly roles, you know, problems when incoherence uh, stymies progress, but there's also something to be said for pluralism of approaches <coughs> because you can't know in advance uh, what necessarily will be the, the uh, action that makes a difference. And uh, if I can perhaps take one or two areas uh, of concern and human rights uh, observation in China, rip from the headlines, and uh, comment on how the principles apply. Uh, Bill mentioned SARS and communicable diseases. Uh, this is an example where absolutely the principle of persuading China that uh, it's in the interest of China's leaders to observe human rights principles. In particular, in this case, freedom of speech and freedom of the press are absolutely uh, relevant if uh, in quiet meetings, in government-to-government -government channels where it is truly and naturally a concern for both governments to be discussing public health concerns, do government officials on the U.S. side raise the issue of public information, uh, both as a prevention, a way to prevent the human costs of uh, preventable disease transmission that is 
if you need if you want to carry out prevention efforts, you must allow free media reporting. Uh, but not only does it help uh, individuals protect themselves, in fact, it provides the kind of pressure that the central government needs as an ally in controlling the corrupt and lawless behavior of local officials. A good example of uh, talking about the interests of government leaders in uh, changing their institutional practices and regimes in a way that protects human rights and, and is in their interests. Uh, the poison milk scandal is really a, a cut from the same mold. Uh, some officials through at every level knew, certainly by December 2007 and often earlier, of terrible health consequences of continued uh, use of melamine chemical uh, additives uh, illegally to uh, artificially boost protein count in milk and other products. And, it was known to the whole world when American pets died because of melamine in pet food. Uh, and yet, why was the central government unable to enforce its own laws uh, in food safety and public health protection? Uh, shouldn't it be uh, even more a part of our government-to-government -government dialogue uh, to emphasize the role of media in helping central government officials who, may, uh, who clearly were unable to enforce their own law to create the kind of allies in society for the, protect, for the implementation of law that clearly protects human public health and human rights. Uh, I would like to end with one small comment that's really ripped from the headlines, uh, was not, had not happened yet when the report was, uh, went to press, which is uh, for the new government, uh, how to react to the fact that the Chinese government uh, press broadcast, Chinese government broadcast of President Obama's inaugural address was censored midstream while, th while being uh, transmitted live. Uh, I do think it would be a betrayal of American principles were nobody anywhere in the U.S. government or the president himself to say something about how offensive it is to experience censorship uh, as obviously as that. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Louisa. Thanks to both of our panelists. I'm going to ask each of them a single question, and then I'm going to ask a question that I'd like them each to respond to, uh, and then we will throw the floor open, uh, open to all of you. The question that I'm going to ask you each to respond to, but I'll give you a moment to think about, you both emphasize the importance of the United States supporting internal forces within China that are working towards the ends that we applaud, be it NGOs or uh, individuals. And what I'd like you to do for us is to help put some flesh on those bones by thinking back to one or two examples that to you are emblematic of what has worked, what has been constructive in this respect, and what we ought to utilize as something of a model for going forward. But before, before you each respond to that, I'll give you each time to think about that. But I want first to ask Harry a specific question and then Louisa, and then ask them to respond to that question. Uh, Harry, I, I really do appreciate your, your uh, criticisms of the report, and I, I thank you for them and, and for the, the measured tone in which you provided them. Uh, and I only want to ask you this question. You've, you've said that the U.S. ought to consider adopting the principle of not doing unto China what we would not have China do unto us. And you've also cited the fact that uh, Chinese policy 
receives very significant support among the Chinese people. But, of course, the truth is that in the early days of the Guantanamo Bay Detention Center, that received great support among the American people. Today, the death penalty receives widespread support among the American people. In the years leading up to the Civil War, slavery received widespread support not just in the South but in the North. So obviously, whenever a country is, is interfacing with another country, it has to make some judgment as to who within that country it's going to listen to to decide what to not do unto that country. And how do we, how do we decide whether we listen to those who, are, who continue to speak out in favor of greater freedom and, and greater respect for human rights in China, people who are described, for example, in Philip Pond's new book, Out of Mile's Shadow, or whether we listen to the government and the majority of people who seem to be in, in favor of the government's view. Okay. Two uh, very good questions. Um, first of all, with regard to who do you listen to, I think that obviously if you're making ethical judgments, you have to make those judgments according to your ethical standards. But I was speaking more, um, in a sense, strategically. Uh, it seems to me that if you have a situation where a policy is uh, supported not only by the government but by a majority of citizens, your ability to promote change is going to be even more limited uh, than it is if it is uh, supported uh, only by a powerful government alone. And it seems to me that your job then is uh, at the same time to try to have a shorter term strategy of focusing on issues where there may be a greater constituency for change, whether inside or outside government, and then a longer term strategy if you think this really is based on ignorance or ideology or whatever uh, factor. Uh, working on uh, strategies that try to expose that population uh, to a somewhat uh, different sense of uh, moral or legal norms than they might thus far be familiar with. So I was talking about it from more of a strategic point of view. And again, my reference to the support of the, uh, as indicated by public opinion polls, of the Chinese people for the proposition that their country is on the right track that was more a reaction to the idea that China uh, is uh, the premier human rights uh, offender or abuser. Uh, and I was asking how th you would justify those. Is it a massive false consciousness by the Chinese people or what? On the second question, I was speaking when I talked about the Chinese version of the Golden Rule. Again, I was speaking strategically or tactically. Uh, if we tried to imagine uh, that there are problems in the United States, Another government, not necessarily China, let's say France, Britain, whatever, Japan, uh, were to come to us uh, whose citizens and whose government officials were concerned about those abuses, what strategies would we welcome and what strategies would we think were out of bounds and why? And what lessons might we draw from that? Obviously, if a country tried to impose sanctions on us for Guantanamo Bay, for example, I don't know how we would have responded. We probably would have uh, gotten our backs up a little bit more uh, than if they had used other strategies, simply because the tactic seemed to be inappropriate, even though the criticism may have been valid. So I didn't give any answers to that question as to what conclusions we would raise from asking that question. But I've always been struck that the United States, in so many areas, has been just as jealous of its own sovereignty 
as countries like China are, uh, and yet we do seem to be unaware of the fact that, in effect, we are violating that golden rule. We are doing to others or not doing to others uh, what they would rather we not do or do do. So uh, just as a question of testing our approach by applying this uh, version of a universal norm. Well, my only point is that to, to take your question, those who oppose the death penalty more than welcome the intervention, not necessarily, of course, there aren't economic sanctions, but other forms of sanctions that Europeans and others have brought against the United States. The majority of people, certainly the government, may not have welcomed that. But if you listen to those who take an anti-death penalty perspective, just to use that example, there may be ways in which they have welcomed that. So, so certainly I agree that, that sanctions, uh, as I say in the paper explicitly, are simply not, a, not on the table here with regard to China. Uh, I'll come back to you, Harry, for the, for the other question. Louisa, uh, my question to you has to do with the democracy and human rights agenda with which you started out. And of course, you, you are an expert in, in this area of democracy promotion, and, and you know as well as anyone that, that democracy promotion has received something of a, of a bad name over the last few years, given the, the way in which it was promoted. And even before that, there was skepticism in some quarters of the human rights community about linking these two. And so I, I'd like you to reflect uh, as we go forward, certainly specifically with China, but more broadly, if you would, as we go forward now with a new administration that presumably cares about both democracy promotion and human rights, what kind of advice and guidelines would you give for, in effect, resurrecting the democracy promotion agenda and tying it appropriately, or perhaps in some places uh, uh, not tying it, to, to the promotion of human rights? Large question. Uh, well, of course, uh, as you say in your report, human rights has a, uh, a very universal character that's, that's hard for people to dispute. So on, in that case, you have a reliance on uh, multilateral approaches, a reference to universal standards, a reference to uh, conventions that the government of China has uh, signed on to. And so there's a, a well-established uh, path for raising the issue with China, and I think uh, for more broadly for the U.S. government on democracy promotion and how best to present it, uh, characterize it, pursue it. Uh, well, I'll, I'll recommend a, a, an issue in the current issue, uh, article in the current issue of the Journal of Democracy by Tom Carruthers on some variety of approaches on that developmental uh, versus political change uh, as a model for how to bring democracy to countries. But it's true that human rights implementation of human rights standards and real respect for human rights must be adapted to the local situation, but that's even more true of democracy. What kinds of political forms uh, will best provide self-government uh, with expressing universal values but in local forms and in using language and practices and uh, models that resonate with people's experience and traditional models of virtuous behavior uh, and their own self-conception. And so uh, in that case, uh, local people even more have to take the lead on what the kinds of reforms they're looking for. Charter 08 is an example of one voice, 300 intellectuals uh, who've now gained the support of 8,000 more people who've signed on with their, uh, this is all in China, with their own uh, names and real email addresses and their uh, real location. 
Um, there may be other uh, models, and that's where the human rights uh, dimension of protecting freedom of speech would allow a genuine debate to go on within China about what kinds of political reforms uh, should happen in the future and whether it should be based on an in-state model, here's the beautiful democracy we want in the future, or whether one ought to start instead with incremental reforms uh, at the institution level, at the local level, institution by institution. An example of, of what's worked. What should we model ourselves after, Harry? Well, I'll actually give you three because I think there are three different kinds. I think that probably the biggest impact of the United States has had on China is basically opening up our society to Chinese coming as students, as visiting scholars, or even on short-term study missions. You know, I don't think that's necessarily worked in every single case, but I think that it has exposed vast numbers of Chinese, older and especially younger, uh, to the way in which American society works. And I think it's been an enormous force for long-term change uh, in Chinese society. That's point number one, or example number one. Number two, um, I think we all agree that the rule of law uh, is important uh, from a human rights perspective, and I think that the Chinese increasingly see it uh, works from their perspective as well. And I think that some of the areas where we have worked most effectively with the Chinese government uh, has been in the development of the legal structure, not only in terms of legal drafting, uh, the legal codes, but also uh, the operation of, uh, of courts. The process still is very incomplete, and there's been some very unhappy backward motion in some areas over the last uh, year or so, but I think this is an area where we've seen a vast change over the last 30 years. And finally, I think that most, one of the most promising areas today is working uh, with uh, uh, Chinese NGOs inside China, developing their capacity uh, to work on the issues of concern to them. The Chinese government, of course, has turned to NGOs as basically service providers, as a way of providing services, implementing policies in ways that local government cannot do on its own. Uh, the Chinese government, I'm sure, would like to restrict the NGOs to that service provider role. But I think it's not uh, outside the realm of imagination. In fact, it's very much within the realm of reality that service providers very quickly become advocates for more effective policies that uh, would um, uh, help promote the issues that they're, that they're working on. And I think we're beginning to see some very interesting work by environmental NGOs and the extent that uh, uh, outsiders can provide technical assistance, some small financial support, uh, that is gradually building a more robust uh, Chinese civil society. Now again, strategic persistence. These are things that are not going to happen overnight. Uh, but I think in all three of these areas, we see that we have made a difference at the individual level, the civil society level, and even the government level. Much. I'll give one example which uh, uh, may be an answer to uh, Harry's query as to why in the world it makes sense to single out individual human rights issues. I think the creation by the Congress of the Congressional Executive Commission on China, uh, separately the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom accompanying uh, special attention within the State Department on religious freedom, uh, have all had a very positive effect in the sense that they uh, enable the U.S. government to keep tabs on developments in China and at least uh, provide the basis for interagency coordination and for reminding U.S. government actors of the role they can play in furthering human rights. And in fact, they provide 
a particularly useful outlet for those activists in China who feel that international exposure is technically what they need. Uh, they don't always need it. They sometimes are doing their NGO public health work, environmental work, has no, no reference at all to international attention. But other times they do believe international attention will help their work, will protect them from uh, retaliation by local officials or help them bring other kinds of new supporters, other NGOs that have been working in other countries that have never heard of them may come and provide partnerships. So there are times when that international attention is helpful. And in fact, that's often provided by um, American, uh, you know, the, non-governmental organizations, individual specialists, but sometimes it is these bodies within our government who provide that echo chamber and, and exposure, and I think that's been a very successful change in our government policy. Um, I do want to say that I, I completely agree that uh, the development of modern, self-enforcing professional standards, for example, in the area of rule of law for judges, for lawyers, is a very very powerful force for change and institutional change in China. I would also extend that to the field of journalism. Uh, there's something inherent about that being a news provider, despite some communists like Stalin saying, you know, actually the media are engineers of men's souls and will mold them uh, by our own ideological vision. No matter in the depths of repression, nonetheless, people whose job is to write for newspapers feel intently sooner or later the contradiction between an ideologically driven censored and controlled media and the quest for truth, which is a universal human aspiration. And so there's always going to be a counterforce within journalism to try to uh, adhere to what we consider real journalism that it has a public service, uh, public uh, service and, uh, you know, in the interests of, of the public. And uh, that's another profession where cooperation on continuing to strengthen professional standards uh, is in itself a powerful force for a good change in China. Thank you. Now we open this floor to you. Please identify yourselves. I think we have a microphone. Yes, Susie will bring you a microphone back in the center there on the right, Susie. State your name and affiliation. Okay. My name is Shizhong Chen. I'm the president of Conscience Foundation. I came from San Diego um, to, um, to this event. And um, uh, first of all, as a Chinese, I want to express my heartfelt uh, appreciation to America's uh, genuine concern for China's human rights condition. And uh, it, um, but I have a concern, that is uh, the reality check. Sometimes the best intention, when it is detached from the reality, could bring the most regrettable uh, uh, tragedy. And so I have two questions related to reality check. The first one is the reality check with, with uh, China. The second is our policy reality check. The reality was check, uh, uh, related to China is what if what we say China's interest is, in fun is fundamentally in conflict with the regime that rules China? For example, stability. Right? What if that regime rules China through by creating turmoil, by uh, creating um, uh, instability. And that is probably a reality, okay? And uh, let me give you an example, uh, Melanie Milk, all right? The policy, okay, that uh, it's in the interest of Chinese leadership that we don't have food toxicity. But the Chinese government's policy is this, it has its own milk sup uh, supply to the to the high leaders uh, that's their policy okay and then um, the uh, our uh, policy reality check is 
we have this policy, engagement policy, for the past 20 years, right? And the intention is that whenever there's an opportunity, for example, Olympics, when there's an opportunity, we should use the opportunity to help to improve China's human rights condition. Now, if that intention is sincere, then our accountability says then if the policy failed and their people fall victim to the policy, then there should be willingness to come to rescue for those people and there should be willingness to to examine whether that policy worked. We, I haven't seen that re, uh, uh, the re-examination of the policy for the past 20 years. And then this could bring one dire uh, reality that is uh, what, you, what we're afraid of, you know, don't want to see punishing China. That could be, that's already becoming, uh, maybe becoming a bigger reality. That is when more toxic food or product imported to outside world, the people here made by themselves, boycott China product. And that forces the door to close. Now, whatever our policy, the pol political policy could advise otherwise, people would make their own decision. All right, that's my comment and question. Thank you. Thank you very much. Which of you wants to tackle one or both of those? Neither of you want to <laughs> tackle either of those. I mean, I. Certainly, I would say with regard to your first point that one of the principles that we are trying to stress here is that it is important to underline, to dramatize to the Chinese government the ways in which, in the name of promoting stability, they may be promoting instability. And the SARS and milk scandals are examples of that. And I think some of the, what we've talked about here in terms of supporting journalists and lawyers and others who are attempting to introduce grievance mechanisms and those forms of, of uh, expression that provide a society with forms of release and avenues of uh, dissent uh, and therefore contribute in the long run, though sometimes not in the short run, to the stability of a society uh, are very important and are certainly one of the things that the U.S. can do to be, to be of support to those inside China who are taking this kind of role. I, I will respond, if I could, to the gentleman's uh, questions. Um, if I understood him correctly uh, when he was talking about uh, the melamine scandal and others was that I thought I heard you say that you felt that the Chinese regime was creating instability uh, so that it could then uh, present itself as a factor for stability. Did I understand you correctly or not? Through, uh, through creating terror and through creating turmoil periodically, every three to five years, it created a, a movement, and that maintains a, a terror, uh, and that's how it, how it rules, and that's proven uh, in the past 60 years, and that's, you know, there are other many examples that the regime's interest and the national interest just conflict with each other fundamentally. That's true. Uh, that gets into a long debate about whether the regime has evolved over 60 years. But let me speak to the question of the Olympics. I think that's a particularly interesting question. I think that um, whether or not one uh, agreed with the decision to um, give the Olympics to Beijing uh, in 2008, um, I think it is fair to say that those who uh, believed 
that this would lead to a significant improvement in China's human rights record was were wrong. Uh, and I think that there was a tendency to take a few sort of what I would call winks and nudges by Chinese leaders as some kind of a promise that uh, this would lead to improvements in China's human rights record. Now, as the Olympics approached, um, I think that we saw uh, something quite spontaneous happening around the world. Uh, and that was that when the Olympic torch run was turned by the Chinese organizing committee, not into a celebration of the Olympics, but a celebration of China, that many protesters decided to express a different view. And that was done in the streets of London, the streets of uh, Paris, the streets of Canberra, uh, and other parts of the world. Uh, the Chinese response to that in turn, the uh, mobilization of Chinese nationalism also, I think, was counterproductive. It had a very negative reaction. So I would agree with you, and this, I think it's a point that we're making, is that actually governments can do in some ways less than NGOs and ordinary citizens, both inside China and, uh, and outside China. Even today, we see a very different uh, view as to, um, or very different strategies and tactics as China tries to respond to the uh, signs coming from the new Obama administration. The Chinese officials are very positive about the relationship. They leave it to unofficial scholars and uh, analysts to be critical of Obama's um, uh, uh, speeches and uh, Geithner's testimony and so forth. Of course, the Chinese government did censor uh, some of uh, uh, Mr. Obama's inaugural address, thus, I guess, saying that they acknowledged that they were the target of the statements that said there are some countries that suppress dissent and on the wrong side of history. I didn't hear Mr. Obama mention China in that category. I also didn't hear him mention China when he talked about the overcoming of fascism and communism with a small c, but I guess the Chinese leadership thought that he was referring to them. I think they were wrong about that, but perhaps that's um, I don't know what that means. Uh, but um, in general, I think they've left it to unofficial Chinese to say one thing while the government is saying something else. It's a subtle message. Uh, and I think that the reaction to the Olympics was in some ways much the same uh, by uh, the rest of the international community. Charlie Brown. Hi, I'm Charlie Brown. I'm uh, with the Institute for International Law and Human Rights and with the blog on diplomatic.net. Um, two comments and then a question. Uh, the first comment is, is that while I agree with the panel that we should not uh, too closely link democracy and human rights policy, we have to be careful not to delink democracy and human rights principles. After all, it is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that says that the right to choose one's government is a fundamental human rights principle. And the Warsaw Declaration of the Community of Democracies highlights all the ways beyond elections that democracy can promote human rights. Uh, my second point is uh, to Professor Harding. While I give you credit for walking into the lion's den, so to speak, of a group of uh, human rights advocates for China, uh, I would make the point that nitpicking over lines of the report does not obfuscate the fact that the Chinese choose to nitpick on human rights themselves, that they choose to emphasize economic, social, and cultural rights and choose not to look at civil and political rights. So I don't think the report is mistaken in its choice to emphasize those areas that the Chinese choose not to emphasize themselves. Uh, one question, and the question is this. What role can the United States play in encouraging Europe to do a better job on promoting human rights in China, and particularly encouraging Asia, which has been notably silent 
has no institutions such as the European-China Human Rights Dialogue or even any internal institutions like the OSCE? What role can the U.S. do in encouraging the Asians to be a little more out there on China? Uh, Harry, a, a chance to respond to your uh, critique of his remarks. I think both of us, all three of us, would agree that we ought not to de-link human rights and democracy principles. I suspect that's not a controversial statement and uh, important to underline that. Certainly among our recommendations with regard to Europe, Europe is that the U.S. take some initiative to perhaps reestablish the burn process, which was a process by which European uh, countries that are many of them themselves engaged in bilateral dialogues over human rights with China uh, found to try to coordinate their efforts to do that. And that uh, re-engaging with that process we think would be valuable. Whether something similar to that can be established within Asia, and I certainly want to uh, give Louisa an opportunity to respond to that, I think is more problematic. Asia, of course, is more uh, directly affected uh, in many cases by uh, the behemoth in its midst there, and uh, therefore under certain greater pressures. Harry, do you want to first respond to the question? Sure. Just because the Chinese take a cherry pick the human rights uh, that they want to promote because that uh, fits their agenda better, doesn't mean that we should respond by cherry picking the other cherries that they've left on the tree. I mean, we need to take a comprehensive view of human rights. All these human rights political, civic, uh, civil, uh, social, economic, have equal standing in international law. Uh, I would say that they are of equal concern to people whose rights are being violated. Uh, as I said, people who are poor uh, value poverty alleviation just as much as those who are disenfranchised uh, value uh, democracy promotion. I think the United States has made a very serious error and in fact is shortchanging our own ethical traditions by focusing only on a narrow subset of human rights rather than taking the comprehensive view. And I think I would uh, vehemently disagree with the idea that we should simply focus on what the Chinese choose to ignore rather than simply repeating their error, mirror imaged, uh, as opposed to taking a broad and comprehensive view of all universally protected human rights. And I, I do want to emphasize again, and then ask Louisa to comment on your final uh, point, Charlie. I do want to emphasize again that the, that the report, both in its text and in my remarks, emphasizes that social and economic rights are of equal concern and importance, and recognition of advances in that area are very, very important. I don't think, however, that it is part of the American tradition to emphasize that. Indeed, quite the opposite. I think I that the American that. tradition has been to ignore uh, social and economic rights. And in that, in that sense, there's uh, much that we can learn from the Chinese and others. Louisa, how can we get other Asian countries to be more proactive and coordinated in this respect? Well, that too has to be something that is an internal initiative. Of course, the U.S. can um, encourage it. I would say one place to start uh, is a set of institutions that have very recently come online and which don't really have enough, uh, have sufficient international uh, ties. And so I would encourage all of you to, and for our government to encourage uh, their development. One is the Taiwan Foundation for Democracy. It's publicly funded uh, as an expression of the relatively recent uh, development of democracy in Taiwan, uh, an institution whose mission is to assist Democrats 
both in Taiwan to further develop uh, its own institutions and to reach out in solidarity to Democrats in other countries uh, who are doing the same, and so research grants and so on. And the Korea Foundation for Democracy has existed for about the same amount of time five or eight years, has focused mostly on, uh, exclusively domestically so far, and has now just published a very interesting study on how a Korean Democracy Foundation, also publicly funded, can uh, do work uh, in, among its neighbors. And also Japan, uh, some government and non-governmental people have been talking about establishing such an institution. That's one place to start. Okay, great. Let's go to this side of the room. Uh, maybe right up front. One of the. Thank you. Uh, I'm Luna, and I graduated from law school in Tsinghua University in Beijing, and also in Hong Kong. And I'm studying international development in University of Maryland. And since I uh, have been worked in the Chinese news agencies and TV station, I especially have a few comments about the freedom. Um, uh, press of freedom in China. So uh, I really agree with uh, Louis' agree, uh, opinion that people need need internal power to change the society, and which is much more important to try to change the government right now. Because um, I can give you a few um, examples. For example, the people. We have only about ten minutes left, and we need to give other people opportunity. Can can you can you pose a question if you have one? Yeah. So uh, actually, my question is the um, to explore the truth in China. It's not a like a, a big problem as before, and people know news and know the truth uh, pretty quickly. Now the point is there is no way for the people to lack out and uh, know their opinion and their news. Uh, immediately, and also because the the rule of law system uh, in China is still like so, we don't have media law, and uh, um, even people have problems. There is no legal rule to legal method to um, let government understand their problem. For example, we don't have a constitutional court. That's why uh, there are a lot of uh, human rights problems cannot be solved. So my suggestion and my question is whether you can do something as U.S. government to solve the legal problem, for example, to help law students to get more education and to help China to um, build a constitutional law. That's my question. Okay. Well, I think, I think the American Bar Association and others have, have undertaken a number of programs to try to do exactly that. And we certainly support increase in funding for that those types of programs. Uh, Kumar, do you have a question? Yeah, Kumar from Amnesty International. Uh, Bill, thanks for writing the report and taking the lead on this. Uh, uh, it's important because Obama administration is in a very good position to take the lead on human rights around the world as well as in China. He has released or uh, he has promised that he's going to close Guantanamo stop torture and all the rest of it. Uh, so this is the best time to take the concrete action. But he has already failed by, as Luisa mentioned, uh, failed to at least condemn Chinese authorities censoring parts of his uh, uh, inaugural speech. So hopefully that should be the first step. Uh, my question is basically, uh, by the way, trade and human rights, which you mentioned, uh, uh, Clinton administration made a serious mistake of, of delinking trade and human rights. That's where I think Chinese got their strength of ignoring US, uh, US pressure afterwards. But my question is, um, Obama administration's 
main foreign policy priority is Pakistan, Afghanistan. Anyone who covers that area knew that uh, China should be brought into the scene to deal with that issue. Uh, how is this, what's your proposal? How are you going to, here one top priority is Afghanistan, um, Pakistan for Ben Laden issue, and on, on the other side is uh, Chinese human rights. How are they going to, how do you want to compromise it? Thanks. Harry, do you have any reflections on that very tough question? Um, well, I'm not quite sure exactly what the question is. In other words, uh, are we going to try to press the Chinese to uh, support human rights in Pakistan and Afghanistan? Or is it you're saying that basically because we will need their support on these issues, yes. we will have less leverage on over? I think we have all agreed that this is the reality. Uh, and that as the agenda expands, uh, our leverage is reduced and our ability to focus on uh, only one issue, like human rights, will also be uh, reduced. My general view in, with, with regard to a very interesting set of passages in Bill's report that we haven't discussed yet, uh, and that is China's uh, support for governments that violate human rights in other countries. Uh, my view is that eventually, and he's already given one example, and that is the Chinese arms shipments to uh, Comrade Bob in, uh, in Zimbabwe, uh, that the Chinese will experience a significant reputational risk from the country in question and from its neighbors. Uh, and I think that the Chinese are not sufficiently aware yet of that reputational risk, but they will increasingly experience it, and that this will be a very major driver in their, in their policy. Again, it won't be the United States or Europe pressing them to change their policy towards Mugabe, but it will be uh, people and other governments in the area uh, who will begin to require uh, that the Chinese not so clearly uh, provide material to support uh, to governments of that, uh, of that kind. I also suspect, given what my reading of the Chinese blogosphere with regard to the concern about corruption inside China, that it won't take too long for Chinese bloggers to ask very hard questions about what happens to Chinese money uh, that is going to investments uh, in corrupt and unstable third world countries. And I think that there will be a time when there will be a scandal where we will see that uh, millions of, not hundreds of millions of renminbi have disappeared into some bank account in some uh, other country and questions will begin to be asked about conditionality, accountability, in the same way that they have been uh, in the West. This won't happen all at once, uh, but I'm absolutely convinced that it will. And once again, it shows the power of civil society inside and outside China, as well as the power of governments. And again, as I've already said, I think increasingly the action is going to be uh, uh, in the hands of civil societies around the world, including China, uh, and relatively less in the hands of governments. Louisa, do you have anything? Okay. Uh, let's, let's go to the back. Gentleman in the back. Yeah, uh, my name is Alim Seta from the Uyghur American Association. And uh, my question is really about whether engaging China in terms of human rights I think uh, in the mid-1990s, it was a very big topic for the Clinton administration, how to engage China. At the time, of course, President Clinton called China a strategic partner and uh, separated human rights from trade and also abolished basically the annual PNTR review at the U.S. Congress. 
And uh, since then, basically, U.S. policy with China is to engage. And at the, at the time, also, it was said that Internet would help bring uh, democracy in China. And uh, this June uh, 4th is going to be the 20th anniversary of the Tiananmen Massacre. And for the past 20 years, we have seen a little, very little human rights improvement in China. And also, last uh, fall, basically, China hosted Olympics. In order to get the right to host Olympics, China promised to improve human rights. My question is, uh, do you still believe that engagement will work? And uh, or what other policy options should the United States to adopt? Thank you. Well, I, I think we implicitly do believe that engagement, whether it works or not, is our only option. And the, the, the report lays out a whole series of specific recommendations for how to do that. Uh, the last question, the, 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 the gentleman, let me, no, the, the gentleman with his hand highest in the air. <laughs> Hi, uh, Jim Guerin, Initiatives for China. Uh, I have one very uh, brief question, and that is, uh, uh, I think I heard uh, Professor uh, Harding, yes, uh, make a statement uh, alluding to some research that indicated uh, an overwhelming majority of the Chinese people approved of the track that their government was on. And I, I'd just like to temper my question with the observation that historically, I believe, from Henry Kissinger on down, um, all the policymakers in the 80s and everything else, all the intellectuals, never foresaw, never had a clue of the imminent collapse of the Soviet Union. So, uh, of course, good policy is based upon good information and good analysis. How can you square that research in terms of validity and reliability when it's conducted in a totalitarian regime that so tightly controls uh, what its people thinks and the people know that their responses uh, leave them open to repression and consequences from the Chinese government. And how do you square that with other information like Charter 08 or the hundreds of thousands of demonstrations and protests that go on every year uh, in China at great expense and risk to their people's lives and fortunes? Okay. Thank you. Let's let Harry answer. Um, well, um, first of all, I don't actually believe in the validity or reliability of those polls. It was uh, actually Bill who mentioned those polls in his, in his report, and I was asking him how he squared the two. I think we have evidence that uh, the Chinese, uh, whatever the intentions of the higher-level officials who commission polls, lower-level officials who know that it will be looked at by region and by community, uh, are known, at least in some cases, to give the correct answers to uh, respondents and to, if it's a telephone poll, even in some reported cases, disconnect the phones of those who uh, might give uh, the incorrect reply. So I, I, tend to be, I tend to be skeptical about this. Uh, but I do think that uh, we need to draw, it's too bad that Jim Mann has left because he's written a very interesting book on the idea that China's about to collapse uh, because of popular dissent is one of the soothing scenarios alongside the one that it will inevitably evolve. Since I spent two years professionally doing uh, political risk analysis, I know that you cannot give these uncontingent non-probabilistic forecasts. You have to say under what conditions and with what probability are various scenarios about to occur. Uh, and the explosion of dissent is a very real possibility. I think it's a relatively low probability at this point, but it cannot be, uh, it cannot be excluded. I think that so far uh, the uh, situation has been lots of local protest, 
over local issues that the Chinese government, by various strategies, has managed to keep localized. The question is, at what point, if ever, do Chinese people connect the dots and see local issues as, in fact, representing a broader pattern? I was struck by the fact that that did not happen to a significant degree with the Sichuan earthquake, which represented a very widespread uh, lower construction standards for schools as compared to other buildings. And yet that did not create widespread protest beyond the families directly involved. And I found that somewhat surprising. I would have thought there would have been more of a national issue. Uh, so uh, we still see this localization strategy uh, working to some degree. Uh, but uh, this will be a difficult transition for China the next several years, and we will have to see uh, at what point, if ever, uh, we have a more uh, nationalized uh, protest movement. Uh, it's at this point, it's, um, uh, it's hard to uh, know what the probabilities are. I would say that they are beginning to, beginning to increase, although this is not uh, necessarily the most probable scenario at this point. And this merely reinforces, I think, one of the points Louisa was making about the importance of remaining agnostic about that question and yet continuing to have a certain amount of faith that we do what we can and, uh, and we hope that it will have an impact. That's what this report is designed to help us do. And I thank both Harry Harding and Louisa Grieve for being with us today and uh, thank you for coming. Let's thank our panelists.